Let's turn to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, we will be considering chapter 4 this afternoon. 2 Samuel chapter 4. Please hear the reading of God's word. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands, the name of one, Bana, and the name of the other, Rechab, sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin, from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beeroth fights fled to Gitaim, and, uh, and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in, haste, in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimon, the Beorothites, Rechab and Bana set out, and about, the, and, uh, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth, and he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get the wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to David, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy. Who sought your life? The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day uh, on Saul and his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Beorothites. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house in, on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and their feet, and hung and hung them before beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Before we hear God's word, may I request that we ask the Lord for help. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you again 
we need your help. We need you to guide and help us. We need you to teach us your word, for we cannot understand even a single line, even a single word. If you do not illuminate your word by your spirit, please help me, Lord, to be clear. Help me to be simple. Help me to be faithful to your word. Oh, Lord, build up your church as your word is proclaimed this afternoon. Oh, may Christ be exalted in this place. May he increase. May he be lifted up and may we decrease as we hear your word. We thank you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the hardest jobs in Kenya that I don't think anyone would want, or um, I'm thinking no one would want that job, it pays well, but people really would look at that job as very stressful to the extent that even though you are paid very good money, it's not worth it. It's being the chairperson of the IEBC, isn't it? <laughs> You're laughing because you know it's true, isn't it? It's one of those jobs that maybe you would want it before the election, but then after the election, take leave or maybe say you're sick and then come back after the election <laughs> to get the big salary. But I mean, to be honest, I look at the man, it's mainly been men, the men who sit on that chair and the work that they have to do. And to be honest, I don't envy them in any way. And I'm sure many of you don't envy that job. It's stressful. It's stressful because you have to make decisions that are hard. Here you have the results. Here you have what you are, is needed to be done. But you also look at this other side and you see the consequences of you doing what you're supposed to do or not doing what you're supposed to do. I mean, it's a terrible job. It's a hard thing. You know, if I announce this person and then there is chaos and, and people will blame me, what will happen? Or if I say, you know what, I'll ignore the results and announce this person and maybe now there is peace in the country, but then I have not followed the law, I have not been just, and I live with myself. I mean, I wouldn't want that job. It's a hard job. And for those who are gunning for that job, think twice, eh? It's stressful. It's very hard. It's very harsh. But sometimes as we look at that job, I... I tend to think, even in our own lives, we find ourselves in places where we are almost in a similar position, where we look at the situation in our lives and we look at the situation around us. And we look at the word of God and we say, you know, if I follow the word of God, there will be no peace in my life. 
And therefore, it is better for me to ensure that, uh, let me just ignore the word of God and follow man's way or other means and ensure that there is peace in my family. There is peace in my life. There is peace in my workplace. We are constantly, uh, or we constantly find ourselves in those situations where we are called to reject the word of God so that there may be the results that we want, so that there may be peace. And what I want us to see is that this is a very dangerous, slippery slope. If you ever ignore the reality of God's word, if you ever ignore what is required of you from God's word so that there may be good. You know how people say, let me sin so that good may come out of this, you know, and God will forgive me because, you know, I'm doing this sin so that I help this person or I help this situation. In the same way that if you are the chair of the IBC and you reject the results, simply because you simply want there to be calm, you will be in trouble. We will be in big trouble if we ever ignore the word of God. And we say, you know, if I apply the word of God in this situation, if I follow what the word of God says in this situation, ah, things might even get worse. Listen, brethren, obey the word of God. Obey the word of God. Don't overthink the consequences. Yes, the consequences might be that the troubles in your life might increase. That's sometimes the case, isn't it? That because we have decided, you know what? If, if I don't take this bribe, I know I'll not be able to pay school fees, I'll not be able to do this and that. And things will be even worse in my life. But the fact that I have peace with God, the fact that I have followed God's word, that is far better. It is better that we be there than to sin and say, well, I'm doing God's work. It will help the church. It will help this person. It will help this situation. Because as we see with these two men in this passage, because this chapter is mainly about these two men, the sons of Rimon the fa famous or the infamous sons of Rimon, who ended up following this slippery slope of presumption. Let me do something wicked so that there may be good in the land of Israel. They, they end up doing something that is wicked, horrible, and they are judged for it harshly. And as we look at their harsh judgment, it should remind us, it should help us to know that just because you think your action will bring good, if it is not prescribed by the word of God, if it is sinful, if it is against the word of God, God will not excuse it. So this afternoon, I want to warn us against the sin of presumption where we think that 
God will be glorified in our wicked actions simply because they will bring out some good. It is better we obey God and leave the consequences to him. And as we look at the slippery slope of this sin called presumption, again, presumption is when you see that word, especially in theology, when you see the word presumption, it is not the same as assumption. They almost appear similar, but they are different. Presumption is where you do something with arrogance and great and, and heavy uh, pride. It's okay, just go back. I haven't gotten to point number one. Um, presumption is where you do something with a heavy hand, with arrogance. You know very clearly this is what you're supposed to do, but you say, I will still do it. Good will come from it. I want us to see three things. So first of all, I want us to see one of the ways that this sin is a slippery slope to ignore the word of God, to ignore the good that you're supposed to do and do the evil so that quote-unquote good may come out, is that normally we look, we are guided by the difficulties around us. We look at the difficult situation. We look at a challenge, a trouble, a certain harsh condition, and we say, you know what? Maybe I can bring some good by doing this thing, although it is against the word of God. From these two men, the sons of Rimon, we see that there was a difficulty in the time, in the nation of Israel at this time. Remember that Judah, for those who don't know your uh, biblical history, Judah, the southern kingdom, the, the tribe which David came from, the tribe where the king was supposed to come from, they occupied the southern part of Israel. And so the people of Judah had accepted David to be their king and they had made him uh, king in Hebron. But the ten northern tribes, all the other tribes, had not accepted David. They were still loyal to the house of Saul. And we saw that in chapter, uh, in chapter 3, last time, if you are here, we saw that there was a man who tried to reach out to David, Abner, uh, to see whether there can be some peace between them so that David may now be installed and be made king, but then Abner is cut off, he is killed. And what happens when Abner, their peacekeeper, their peacemaker is killed? We are told this in verse 1. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 4, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. So the context of this situation is that Israel was at a period of great trouble. And the sons of Rimon, Bana and uh, Rechab, looked at the situation and saw that the best thing to do is to kill the king of Israel. They were motivated to kill the uh, Ishbosheth 
by the situation that was around them. The reason why this context is given to us is to show us what motivated these men. They simply didn't act out of a vacuum. There is something in their context that made them to do that. They looked at the dire situation in Israel and became pragmatic and decided to solve the problem of the nation on their own way, using their own hands. I mean, look at the person on the throne. What kind of a person was leading Israel at this time? He was a weakling, if we can say that. Ishbosheth was a weak leader. Look at him. When he hears this news, his courage fails him. He went into depression, if we can put it that way. A weak leader. So they were looking around and wondering, this man is not leading us at this time. This man surely can't be king. We had better go to David. A wimp for a king. So Saul's house was not strong. It was not helping them. And even more serious, uh, if you look at again the context, Ishbosheth was there, but who was the other descendant of Saul that was around? It was who? Mephibosheth, isn't it? And Mephibosheth could not lead because he was crippled. So it was a situation where as a nation, they were looking around and wondering, you know, if we get rid of, if we tell Ishbosheth to step down, Mephibosheth can't come up. He can't take up the throne. He was the only male left. These were the only two male left. And therefore they had limited options. Their options were narrow. Again, they looked at Israel, the situation in Israel. We are told in one line, and all Israel was dismayed. This is the picture of the whole country, a country that is in mass depression, a country that is broken, a country that is looking up for leadership and it's not finding leadership. A weak leader who cannot be replaced by someone from the family. And they are looking around and they are seeing the nation sinking deeper and deeper after, into dismay after Abner, their hero, was dead. So there was no other solution. They looked around and they saw that the only solution then was the cold-blooded assassination or murder of their master. That's the only way out. And you know that's sometimes how we are tempted into the scene of presumption, isn't it? There is no other way out. Isn't that what the devil always whispers into our ears? I mean, look, at, look around. Look at the situation around. 
There's no way out, guys. There's no way out. We need to find a solution. We need to be pragmatic. Pragmatism. The father of great sin. To say, you know what? Rather than be loyal to this man, let's shed blood. You mean God cannot accomplish his work to help Israel without you shedding blood, without you killing in cold blood your king, your master? Isn't there any other way? And we see this even in our own lives, isn't it? Again, we are trapped, or we think we are trapped. We can't obey God. If we obey God, we are trapped. Things will get worse. There is no way out. The only way out is for us to sin. The only way out for us is to do something that is against God's will. Do not allow a difficult situation to cause you into pragmatism, into sinful motives, into wrong motives that are against the Bible. No matter how difficult things are, obey God. You remember how Saul was pragmatic in 1 Samuel? What did he do? They were about to go to war with the Philistines. And before they go to war, they were about to sacrifice. So they wanted to sacrifice before they go to war. But then the only person who was authorized to sacrifice Samuel was doing what? Was taking long. He was delaying. And Saul kept on looking around and he saw his men leaving, one after the other. He could see groups of men going back home. His army that was big was now doing what? Being chipped away. People were leaving one by one. Maybe he would see one horde, one group of people going this way and another group of people going that way. And he was wondering, what's happening? I need to, I need to do something. And what did he ultimately do? He took the animals and he sacrificed them. He became pragmatic. And what did the Lord tell him? I have rejected you. I have rejected you. You should have waited for me. Don't, soul, don't, you shouldn't have thought of yourself as being cornered. You should have done that which was right. You should have just been patient. Do not allow, dear brethren, a difficult situation to cause you to be pragmatic, to cause you to be sinful, to cause you to think of a, of a, a wicked act. You know, no lady is coming into my life and there's this unbelieving lady here. Why don't I just marry her? Or no man is coming into my life and here is this uh, unbelieving man. He's, he's good enough. I mean, he's not a bad guy. He's, he's okay. I can pass him off at church as a believer. Don't go into pragmatism. Don't allow a difficulty in your life to cause you to go away from God's word. Actually, what it should do is to bring you closer to God. 
So this is one of the first steps towards this slippery slope of the sin of presumption, thinking that things are so hard, things are so difficult, we need to act outside the will of God, outside the law of God. They decided, let's kill this man, let's take him away. Let's end his life. And you know, as we read this passage and as we see the action of this man, you remember the parable that Christ gave of these wicked tenants? These wicked tenants who did not like their master. And so they decided, let's take the Let's take the vineyard. Let the vineyard be, belong to us. And we are told that when they saw that the master has sent his son, what did they do? They, they killed him. This is the best thing for us. If we kill this guy, we will benefit. And that's how, or that's what people did to the son of God. They killed him. They saw Jesus as a troublemaker. They saw Jesus as one who will not help the nation. This is what it's uh, one of the people who was hatching the death of Christ said in John 11, uh, John chapter 11, 49 to 50. We are told that as the Sanhedrin was seated discussing the death of Christ, they said, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest from uh, high priest that year said, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish or die. They decided better that Christ dies than there be trouble. The son of God, the king of the universe, better he die. And the Bible says that what they did was a wicked thing, although it had been predestined by God to happen. They will be judged for it. It is called sin. They are not excused because of this. It was still sin. It was still wicked in the eyes of God. The greatest act of sin to kill the sinless son of God. Watch out against the sin of presumption. So that's how it begins, a difficulty. But then secondly, the second way it, it, it now, you now slide further and further into this sin, as we see with these two men, the sons of Rimon, is that yes, there is a difficulty in the nation, right? You have a country that is dismayed, despondent. You have a king who cannot lead. You have the, the other relative of the king, Mephibosheth, uh, who is a cripple, they are tied, they are locked into a situation that they feel they have to act and act sinfully. But then from that sinful motive, it leads to a sinful action. They act. Their motive, what do they think is a good motive, Lead them, leads them to a sinful action. So don't play around. Don't play at point number one. 
deal with sin there, deal with sin at its bud. When it's still young, when it's still on the motive stage, deal with it there. Because if you don't deal with it there, if you entertain it, if you let that thought run around and uh, you play around with it, what happens? You jump to step number two. Because now you think this thing really needs to be done. You silence your conscience. You out-argue your conscience. And because now you have won a debate against your conscience and you, reject, you have rejected God's word, an action comes up. We see this, especially in verse 5 and 6. What do these men do after seeing the situation? We're told that now the sons of Rimon, the Beorothites, Rechab and Bana set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to go uh, to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. They killed him. Sin in the heart has now given birth. The sin that was in their minds, what they were contemplating, what they were thinking, how do we best save the situation? How do we best save Israel? Because we know that David will become king. And we don't want war. We don't want a situation where people will die. Let's do the necessary. Let's take out the king. And they hatch a plan. And look at the treachery of these men. These were men that the king trusted, that Ishbosheth trusted. They were his men. They were men who led, they were captains of his raiding parties. They were very close to him. They had sworn to protect him. They had made their life in protecting Ishbosheth. And now they decide the best thing for us is to take him out. On top of that, they were of the same tribe with him. You know, no wonder the, the writer of um, this passage shows that Rimon, a man of Benjamin. I mean, they were from the same tribe. But yet, because they had already decided in their minds, their loyalty meant nothing. They became treacherous. We are told they acted. They came to where the king was. The custom those days was that um, the wheat was either stored near the room where the king was, or maybe even in his own room or part of where the king was, because then the king would control the economy. So the granary, the king's granary was near where the king would live, and servants would go, come in and go out. It was a normal thing. And so they decide, you know what, we will pretend to be one of those servants. We will not even go into the king's room as his captains. 
some commentators would say that they were hiding the reality that they were the ones who killed him. They weren't even being forthright, you know, let's call for a meeting and then kill him. They were pretending to be servants so that, could it be that the blame then falls on the servants and not them? Whatever you think of it, but that's what they do. They pretend to go to get grain and then they make their way into the room. And what do they find? They find Ishbosheth rested, relaxing. It was noon, it was a hot day. He's relaxed. Or we would say because of the troubles of his mind, the depression, the difficulty that was around Israel. He, he wasn't a man in the right mind. And what do they do? They kill him. And the execution is written twice. I don't know whether you've noticed that in verse, um, in verse 6, we are given what may appear to be two accounts. They are not two accounts. What normally happens in Hebrew writing is that if someone wants to emphasize something, uh, Hebrew writers would write something in general to give you a, a broader picture, and then they would write again, giving you the, the details. For example, the creation of man. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, um, some people would say, well, you see, the Bible is inaccurate because there are two accounts of creation of man, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. What the writer of Hebrew, uh, sorry, of Genesis is showing is that God made them male and female. But then, chapter 2, he now takes a whole chapter to give you the what? The details in terms of how he created man in his image and how he created them male and female. And the same thing happens here because the writer wants you to see how serious this action was, how wicked this act was. He writes, he gives us two accounts, a general or introductory account, and the next one, a detailed account. Verse 6, and they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, Bana, his brother, escaped. And then look at verse 7. When they came into the house as he lay in, on, his bed, on his bed, in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. So it's not a contradiction. It's actually more detailed. This is how it happened. Chapter 6, introduction, or rather, verse 6, introduction, verse 7, the detailed account. It was a heinous thing. For the Bible to give details or a detailed account of what this man had done, it shows just how it was high treachery. High sin. It wasn't normal sin. It wasn't something that God would excuse. It's something that God has seen it to be so heinous that he will write about it twice. 
verse 6 and verse 7. Lest you forget, this is what these men did. So they act again out of presumption. They move ahead with their plan. They kill the king. They stab him. And they not only stab him, they behead him. That's, that's serious. And then they, after beheading him, it doesn't end there. They carry his head and they go through the Arabah all night and they take the head to Hebron. That's how the slippery slope of sin is. You know, you just start, start there. Think of a hardship and how it needs to be sorted out by uh, a pragmatic uh, way that is against the Bible. And then what happens? You commit the sin. And then because the sin of pragmatism hardens someone so much, you decide, okay, let me, I'm not just satisfied in stabbing him. Let's behead him. Let's not even behead him. Actually, let's take his head now to David. Let us win the approval of David, God's chosen king. Let's win the approval of the anointed of God. Let's bring this thing to God to bless it. And it's easy to do that, isn't it? You commit a sin, and then you try and bring it to God to baptize it. Baptize. Accept my sin. Hide my sin. Show, bless my sin to be good. And that's why you're seeing all these things where, I mean, you look at the TV and you see how politicians, people who are corrupt, who have pillaged money from the treasury, and people are dying in the hospitals because they, we don't have medicine, because you stole money. And then you take all the, that money and you bring it to church. And you bring it to church as if you have done something really good. Here's the money that will help the church to build a nice building. Here's the money that uh, the church will use to expand the work of the gospel. Here's the money you will need to fund missionaries. Sounds good. But God will never accept it. And as we shall see, these men actually judge it for that. They are so hardened. They are so hardened in their sin. This is again the danger of the sin of presumption. You are so hardened that you not only come, you fall into that sin, you do it with such a heavy hand because you presume, you think God is with you. To the extent that even the world wonders what is happening to these people. Don't we see in the Bible where Christians are actually warned and told, I mean, you guys are doing things that even the world does not, does not even do. What's, what's, what's up with that? Presumption. Sin of presumption, well, I'm okay. I, I know 
The Bible doesn't agree with this, but because it will bring about some good, let me do it and do it well and do it hard so that then God may be glorified. No way. They are not commended by the Bible for their cruelty. They have killed a man. They kill a man. And David even says, you know, these men are cruel. They have killed a man in, his, in the safety of his own house. He wasn't killed in the battlefield. He wasn't even killed by them saying, you know what, we will go to war and then when war comes, we will uh, run away from him. They do it, they kill him when it was unexpected. It was heavy-handed. That's what the sin of presumption leads to. A heavy-handed way, an arrogant, a prideful manner of sin. Not that all sin is sin, but the Bible does show us that there are greater and lesser sins. To sin and to think that you're doing God a favor, it's a heavy sin. It's a horrible thing. To stand in the temple and say that you are serving God, as we see in the book of Ezekiel where God says, I saw an even greater sin. In the temple, the priests themselves who claim to serve God, they are the ones who are actually committing sin. That's greater sin. For someone who thinks that they are doing it for the good of God, for the good of the church, for the good of the gospel. What a great sin it is. And what is the final end of this man? Point number three. The slippery slope begins with a difficulty that leads to a sinful motive that then leads to, the motive then leads to a sinful action and they do it with a heavy hand. But then as is the end of sin. All sin ends with judgment. All sin leads to judgment. No matter how, no matter what good you assume it will bring. Sin is sin. Even if it brings good, even if God uses it, let me put it that way. Even if God uses it, it is still what? Sin. And because it's sin, it will be judged. Did in those, imagine those who crucified Christ on the cross, those who accused him or made false accusations and they trained and coached false witnesses to say that this man said he will destroy the temple. This man makes himself king so that he may deny Caesar. Although, yes, God accomplished the greatest work through that, yet these men are called wicked men. And they were judged if they did not repent. They were judged heavily. And they are still being judged today in the eternal flames of hell for that sin. 
we need to see this, dear brethren, from this passage, is that sin is sin, no matter what good we might think it will accomplish. Actually, one of the greatest signs, and if you look at the Bible, you see that one of the signs of someone who is ripe for judgment is someone who is prideful in their sinful acts. Look at this man and what they say. So they behead Ishbosheth, and they run the whole night with someone's head, and then they get to David. And what do they tell David? Look at this. Uh, <clears throat> verse 8. And they uh, brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, and you can almost hear their pride in, in, in this statement written in the Bible. Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy. In other words, David, we have actually done you huh? a favor. And listen, listen as they continue talking. You, you just feel the way these men were hardened in their sins, the presumption in their sinful act. Uh, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And listen to this the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day. This is actually their, this is the reason why they did it. We are doing it for, we're doing it for the Lord. The Lord has avenged you, David. We have done you a favor. But we have also done something that the Lord expected of us. This is the work of the Lord. He has avenged you, David. I mean, remember when Saul and his family hunted you. Remember how they, 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 they terrorized you. Remember how wicked that man was. The Lord, the God of heaven, Yahweh, has now done his will. I mean, that's, that's someone who is ripe for judgment. If you defend your sin and you hide behind the fact that you are doing the work of God, you know, like how these pastors say, I am the anointed of the Lord. Thou shalt not touch the anointed of the Lord. And yet you have sinned against God. These two brothers, the sons of Rimon, after committing a heinous crime, after great treachery, come to David with a triumphant at attitude. They believe that their evil action was justified and sanctified by the expected result. The house of David's enemy has one less member. David, we are good. David, we've done you a favor. That's not the case. What happens? How does David respond to them? He doesn't even wait for them to have some time to relax. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the 
Biorothite. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good, um, good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. So here we see the end of sin, judgment. As is the case with all sin, it will not go unpunished. No sin will go unpunished, no matter how much good you think it will bring. No matter how good you think it has brought to the work of the gospel. No matter what good you think it may have brought to your family, you're actually setting your family up for danger. God will not allow sin to go unpunished. God will reward sin with judgment. Isn't that the word that David uses? I rewarded those guys who said they killed Saul and thought that they were doing a favor. I will reward you with the same. I will reward you with judgment. That is the, day, uh, the end of the scene of presumption. This is one of the big lessons in the scriptures. Sin will not go unpunished. No matter how much we try and baptize it, no matter how much we try and sugarcoat it, no matter how much we try to decorate it, sin, it's sin. Again, for example, when uh, Saul presumed on, the, on what God had commanded and he offered a sacrifice, what did God tell him? Did he tell him, oh, you know what, I understand, I really understand. You know, the men were leaving, your army was leaving, and, and they were departing, and you, uh, you know, Saul, I understand that the situation was so hard for you, and you needed to fight a war. Is that what God told him? No. This is what God told him through Samuel. And Samuel said, that is in First Samuel 15, 22, and 23. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You who is presuming on God, you're being tempted to fall into this sin. Here's the question. What pleases God more? You sacrifice for him or you obey him? What does God value? Sacrifices? Obedience. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. In other words, God is more pleased with you simply obeying in that difficulty. 
you staying put in that difficulty. Not jumping the horse, not jumping the gun and saying, well, let me do, let me do this. This, this is for the better. Really? For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption as iniquity and idolatry. Wow, he, listen to that. That's, that's heavy. And that's from God. Presumption, the sin of presumption. To think you will sin and then bring good from your sin is as idolatry. It's as if you are worshipping an idol. You have no difference with an idolater. You're not worshipping the God of heaven. And then God told him, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you. Because you have rejected the word, because you did not see obedience as something to be followed, these two men, because they chose to follow the way of the world, the way of pragmatism, the way of whatever works, the way of whatever makes things move, whatever it takes to make things happen. That's the, philosophy, that's the philosophy of the world. This is not the philosophy of God. The two men fall under great judgment. David is not impressed by their actions. He is not impressed by their words. He actually counters their words by showing them that they have done a great sin. And what happens? They are cut off. They are killed. They are killed in the most harsh way. This is actually one of the, the Bible commanded this. So David is, some commentators may say that David had gone too far, but I think David is actually following the Bible because in Exodus 21 and verse 14, uh, Exodus 21 and verse 14, this is what the Bible says. If a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. You shall kill him. He shall forfeit his life. He shall die. In other words, he shall be cut off from the people. This is what happens to this man. This is what happens to the sons of Rimon, thinking we can accomplish some good, and they end up sliding farther and farther and deeper into sin, and they are hardened in sin, and ultimately they are judged for it. But then as we look at this passage, again, I want us to look at Christ. I want us to look at Christ who was righteous, who had no sin, who had not harmed anyone. 
You know, when the, the soldiers come to Christ in the garden, he tells them, I was with you in the temple, in the synagogue. I was with you. And you didn't arrest me. Why are you coming to me with clubs and swords if I am a wicked person? And this man ended up killing the innocent, the righteous son of God. What will God do to them? What would, will God do to us who have rejected the Son of God? For the unbeliever who is seated there and you're hearing this and you have listened to the word of God being preached over and over and over and you have rejected the Son of God. And maybe you have good reason to reject the Son of God. Oh, well, if, if I reject him, then uh, if, if I accept Christ, if I repent of my sins, I will lose this relationship. Would you rather that you continue in sin, get utterly good, but then be judged by God? You are in the same rank as this man who killed the Son of God. Judgment awaits you. But oh, if you repent of your sins, if you come to this righteous one, your reward will no longer be a reward of judgment, but it will be a reward of life and life eternal. Those who come to him, those who come to this great king, the great son of David, will receive pardon. Although you, you deserve death, you will be given pardon. But then to the believer, I come to us and I ask us this question. This year, will, if the Lord uh, helps, helps us to see it up to the end, difficulties will come. And some of those difficulties will tempt us to be pragmatic. Be careful. Pray for yourselves. Pray for one another that we may not fall into temptation, that we may not be presumptuous, that we may not think that by doing evil, by doing a sin that no one sees, that your pastor does not see, that your wife or your husband don't see, but then you can accomplish some good. Let me just compromise here just a little bit so that I may accomplish this good. Be very careful. Let's watch ourselves. Let's pray for ourselves that God may keep us from temptation. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening. Oh Lord, we look at your word and we see the judgment that is deserved on those who are presumptuous. And oh Lord, we look at ourselves and we have compromised. We have compromised in one way or another. We have compromised thinking that good will come out of evil. Good will come out of us acting to sort or deal with a difficult situation in our marriage, in our family, in our workplace, in our business. Forgive us, O oh Lord, and help us to be careful.
not to be like this man, not to solve things by going against your word, but rather to say, O oh Lord, that even though you slay us, yet we will serve you. Even though difficulties rise up around us, we will remain firm. Help us to be like the three Hebrew children that we would rather be cast into the fiery furnace than preserve our lives, preserve our names, preserve our ministry by compromising, O oh Lord. Help us to remain firm. Help us to lose it all in our desire to obey you, to obey your revealed will, O oh Lord. Please preserve us. Keep us in your goodness. We pray and ask this in Christ's name. Amen.